0: The the sermon text is going to pick up right where she left off, page 1113. We'll be looking at Romans uh, 2, 12 through 16 next. And I want to bring us back up to speed again on Romans. We started last week with Romans 1. The occasion for the writing of this letter, twofold. One was to prepare this audience of people in Rome for Paul's arrival. He had hoped to go there on a missionary journey. He eventually did go there, but as a prisoner. The other was to bring some light to a crisis that may possibly, probably have been happening in the Roman church at the time he wrote it. That crisis was brought about by the expulsion of the Jewish people under Emperor Claudius in, I think, 49 A.D. My dates are on my other sermon, but I'm trying to remember them. 49 A.D., and they were, after Claudius died in 54 A.D., they all came back. And so in the church, which had been made up of Jews and Gentiles alike before this time, there was a lot of fertile discussion about what does it mean to become a Christian? Do you have to become a Jew first, then to become a Christian? And so Gentiles were being told to keep the Mosaic law, the dietary laws, the law of circumcision. And not all of them were excited about this, of course, Then the Jews were expelled, and basically, while the cat's away, the mice will play, as you know this saying. And so the Gentiles had the church to themselves, and they were able to say, ah, well, uh, we probably don't need to follow all those laws. And they were right, as it turns out. Paul's going to clear this up for us. But then the Jews came back after Claudius died. And so they had to reintegrate this synagogue, this church, with these two factions that maybe didn't war openly, but they definitely had their differences. And Paul's letter, we think, was a way of addressing this question. How do you become a Christian? What does it mean to be declared righteous? What does it mean to be justified? Is that as a result of keeping the law perfectly, including the laws of diet and of circumcision? How Jewish do you have to be to become a Christian? And so he's writing this letter to settle this question. And as we saw uh, even last week, and we see it again in the readings that Adele had twice, that the gospel is God's power unto salvation for all who believe. And then he tips his hand to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. They're equal, but one of them's is first. It's, it's kind of like Animal Farm. Remember George Orwell? All the animals are equal. Just some of them are more equal than the others, right? But it's not actually like that. So don't don't let me tell you that the church is anything like the animal farm. But it has that same kind of feel. The Jews and the Gentiles are on equal footing, but yet they are first because they were first. God reached out to them first. God claimed them first. God wanted to rescue the world through them first. He gave them the law so that that could happen. It just didn't happen on their power. We'll get into that. But now that has opened the way for the Gentiles as well. And so the gospel is God's power unto salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first and then the Gentile. But now, in case the Jews were congratulating themselves a little too strongly, we read from what Adele just read that God's wrath is reserved for those who break the law. Who goes first on that wrath? The Jews are also first in line for God's wrath. So be careful what you wish for. If you really want to be first, you have to be first in both lines. And the Gentile second. But yet those, God will reward those who are faithful to the law. The Jew first and then the Gentile. So Paul, and then Paul's going to develop this even more, much, much later in Romans. About the proper relationship between Jews and Gentiles. But that's the occasion for the writing of this letter. Both to prepare the people for his arrival. He didn't arrive in the way he hoped he would. And also... To define the gospel, define righteousness and justification, and to settle a question that was plaguing this body. I want to rewind again to last week and talk about what the gospel means. And this is sort of a three-part idea of what the gospel means. It seems to be this is Paul's theology of what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news. That's what it means literally. It means the good news. And in general, the good news is that God is faithful. We have to remember that. God does what he says he'll do. God is faithful. He's reliable. So he's faithful and he's reliable, and he honors his end of the deal that he made with his people. That deal is called his covenant, that he's going to rescue the world from its captivity to sin that happened with Adam and Eve so long ago. So God is this heavenly, universal beautiful rescuer and savior. He wants to save and rescue his people from sin and death and the devil and all evil. The way he does this, he had hoped to do it through his people by giving them the law at Mount Sinai. And he found that even giving it his best shot and, and them giving it maybe their best shot, I don't know if they actually ever gave it, gave it their best shot, it failed. Not because God failed but because people failed. So the brokenness of humanity has gone on for generation and generation, and even when given a perfect and beautiful law that they could use to order their lives and bring them closer to God and to keep the covenant with God and be faithful themselves, they failed, and so God had to find a different way. So the second part of the gospel is that God found a way through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that he would be faithful on our behalf. And do for us what we cannot do. That's the gospel. The second part of the gospel. And Jesus himself is faithful and obedient and reliable to God. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but thy will be done. That's really important when Jesus says that to the Father. Because it's about me being, it's about Jesus being reliable I really wish this cup of suffering could pass. And he knew what that suffering entailed, but yet not my will, but thy will be done. And that's, even though it shows the humanness of Jesus not wanting to suffer, it also shows that Jesus is faithful and reliable to the covenant that God makes. And so Jesus is willing to go through with it. Jesus is willing to pay back what is owed. And the third part of the gospel is that we believe this news. It's good news about what God has done, what he's done through Jesus Christ. And then we believe the news that Jesus is who the gospel tells us he is and that he's done what it says he has done. So we believe that he's been raised from the dead. That's huge. We had this last week. Thank you for your testimony last week. And you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ has not been raised, then we of all people are the most to be pitied. Everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the proof that God will do and can do what he says he will do, including raise us from the dead someday. So that's a sign of the faithfulness. So we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he lived, that he did miracles and he taught and that he died and that he was raised again on the third day. And when we believe, and this is the final part of the gospel, when we believe we become God's chosen people, Jew and Gentile alike, all together in the same group. The people through whom God will now rescue the world. So for those of you who have come to believe the gospel and have given your hearts and lives to Jesus Christ, you are the chosen people of God now, and God has enlisted you into his mighty work of rescuing the world from sin, death, and the devil. It's no small assignment. Did you know that when you were signing up? Maybe nobody told you that. You know, you go to the campfire when you're a kid at camp, and and they say, do you want to give your life to Jesus? And the kids say yes. But what if you said, do you want to be one of God's chosen people through whom God is going to redeem the entire universe? Then the kids might go, oh, that's not my will, but thy will to be done, maybe is what they would say, hopefully. It's a big task, but that's what the gospel is, is that when we believe what it says about Jesus and God, We become now the new people of God. So, let's go to our reading. Uh, This reading is going to talk about the two possible paths, or it's going to at least talk about one path to a right covenant relationship with God, which is to obey the law. But in its sort of lack of what it says, it's going to point forward to another way of keeping covenant with God that has to do with the work of Jesus Christ. So be prepared to understand or kind of pay attention to this language about righteousness and justification. Our reading is from Romans 2, 12 through 16. It's page 1113, and it goes like this. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, not those who, who hear it, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to take you right away, uh, and we've seen it before in Romans chapter 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? And it's about righteousness. And we have this word here, again, that somebody will be declared righteous. It's in this last part of verse 13. And I love your children's sermon today, right and righteous. And what do these words mean? And it's not just children that need to understand these words. It's adults too. And you know, I've told you many times before when I prepare a sermon, I learn new things. And when I preach, I preach to myself and I'm convicted and I'm enlightened by uh, not my own brilliance or anything, but, but by the wealth of knowledge that comes to me through my commentaries and through the scriptures that I read Uh, And and other people, you stand on the shoulders of giants sometimes, which is wonderful. But we have words like righteous and righteousness. You've heard those words. But there's also words like justified and justification. And, And of particular interest today, and I want to lead us through this, is this formulation declared righteous, which also could be translated as justified in your Bible. So your Bible may either have declared righteous or justified. Some of you may be reading a different translation, and that's fine. What's interesting about all this is that these are all the same word. Did you know that? Some of you knew that. It's the same word root, at least, in various forms. And some of them are nouns, like justice and righteousness. Those are nouns, right? The, the just, Justice is a noun, isn't it? Righteousness is a noun, it's something you have, it's sort of a thing, right? Sometimes they're verbs, like justify, that's a verb, isn't it? Or declare righteous, that's a, that's a verb form at least, that something is being declared, it's a declarative verb. And some are adjectives, because they modify nouns. Remember, this is like English class, right? Adjectives modify nouns, they're things like colors, and, you know numbers. Right? I have five dollars. Wow, you know. I have a green dollar. Good. At least it's not a counterfeit, right? So some are adjectives because they modify nouns, usually people, so right is an adjective, just is an adjective, righteous, and so forth. Those are but they're all the same word. And in the Greek language, they just change the ending a little bit here and there. It means it's an inflection, an inflection of a particular word changes its function, so it can change its stem, or its root, is this Greek word is dikaio, dikaios. It means right, just, good, holy, all those things. But you add little endings to it, or modify its morphology in various ways, and it becomes a noun, a verb, an adjective, uh, in all sorts of interesting ways. But it's the same word, and so thus it is the same concept. It's the same idea. That Paul is trying to get across here. And it's, it's a very important word because this is God's word. It's about God. And, and you were exactly right, Victoria. God is righteous. God is just. God is faithful. God is true. He is the archetype. He is the, he's like the, the stencil from which all righteousness is then stamped out from that point on. He's the first exemplar of it. So our job today is to understand this word in the context of how we've defined the gospel. Remember the gospel is that, is that God is faithful and it's the news of God how God kept covenant with us through Jesus and how he enlists us into his world rescuing work when we believe. And we find out later on, I'm kind of pointing forward now because this is a challenging chapter. Chapter two is a lot about the law. is a lot about just, uh, judgment. it's a lot about wrath. You notice God's wrath showed up a few times. But we are pointing forward to Being declared righteous or justified, and those are the same idea, same word, happens as a result of God's work in our lives, and it comes about when we believe in the gospel. So, today's reading, which I just read, is not the entire message, it's just a part of it. And it's the it's the part that I think should actually discourage us a little bit. Uh, I don't want you to leave here discouraged, but I want you to be discouraged for the next minute. Can you do that? Can you sort of be discouraged? The discouragement is that so far, the way to be righteous or declared righteous, the way to be justified, is to keep the law in its entirety. Did you catch that? Go ahead and look at verse 13 again, right? For it is not those who hear the law, anyone can hear the law, who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. So this is actually bad news. This is discouraging news, if we're at all realistic about who we are. Um, not going to take a poll or anything, but if anyone in this room thinks that they've never broken God's law, well, come talk to me, because I'm sure I can help you find... (laughs) We can can turn over some rocks and find something. We can open some closets and some, some skeletons will tumble out. I wouldn't relish doing that. Let's not do that. I think we're all on the same page here. None of us is righteous in our own ability. None of us have kept God's law perfectly. We find that the law shows us even that we're incapable of keeping the law itself. And so the discouraging news is that to be declared righteous, one has to keep the law. One has to obey God's law. And I want to expand now a little bit on this idea of being righteous in God's eye, because God's righteousness has a lot to do, yes, with his righteous demands for people, that they treat each other well, not murder each other, not steal from each other. We know the list. But there's a whole other aspect of this that has to do with relationship. Relationships between people are just and righteous when they don't steal from each other. Or commit adultery with each other's spouses. Or steal from each other or kill each other. Things like that. And our relationship with God is righteous and just and holy and good when we have closeness with God. When we're near him. That's the thing that got lost in the Garden of Eden. Remember the story about when Adam and Eve ate the fruit that they should not have eaten? The very next thing is that God came down into the garden to, to feel, and especially yesterday and today too, to feel the cool breeze because it was hot in the garden. But not just that, he wanted to walk with his people. He wanted to put Adam on this side and Eve on this side and stroll through the garden together with his creation because he loved them. And that the consequence of sin not only was shame and fear of their nakedness, But it was a break in the relationship with God himself. They could not walk next to God. They hid. And instantly God knew that something was wrong. And so relationship is broken. And God's, you could say that God cares about the law. God cares about our conduct. But you could also say that God cares about the relationship that he has with you. He wants to be close to you. He wants to walk with you like this. But sin makes you go and hide in shame. And that breaks God's heart. So God, when he rectifies the problem of our sin, doesn't just make a bunch of rules, although that's what he did with Moses and Mount Sinai. He made a bunch of rules. But all of those rules, if you look at them closely, they're about relationship with God. Or they're about relationship with each other. God gave us laws that could shape good and healthy relationships amongst ourselves and with God so that we could wake up in the morning and sing God's praises. You know, you read the Psalms and you really get the sense of somebody who has this deep relationship with God. That's what God wants. That's what it means to sort of enter into God's covenant people is to actually start walking under his arm like that and enjoying the cool afternoon after the cool evening breeze together with him. That's covenant. Not just about doing right Not just about obeying laws, but it's about repairing relationships. I want you to imagine for something, and I think this is going to be easy for you to imagine. I don't know anybody who can't imagine this. Imagine this, that you have a relationship. It could be a brother or a sister, a parent, a friend, a child. Imagine a relationship that is close. A long-term relationship, you'd invested a lot of time in it, a lot of energy into it, a lot of love into it. Do you have that person in mind? Now imagine that that person has betrayed you. Imagine that something was more important to them than you and the relationship that they let you down, that they lied to you, that they talked behind your back, that they spread rumors about you, that they stole from you, you name it. They betrayed you some way or other. They broke relationship with you. Imagine that. I can think of a few, you know. It's not hard to imagine these things because they happen all the time. And now imagine that this is how God feels from his own people. You read the Old Testament, especially the minor prophets and the major prophets, but all of the Old Testament. This story about God's love for his people and how they break faith with him. And he goes back to them and tries to embrace them again and they break faith with him again. This back and forth. And yet God never gives up. He's always true to his half of the covenant. He's always willing to keep his end of the bargain, his part of the deal. Now, I want you to imagine, and this will give you a full sense of what it's like for God. I want you to think about that person. And I want you to imagine going up to them. And your goal is to restore the relationship. And the honesty is that you can't restore the relationship unless you actually talk about what went wrong in the relationship? You can't act like it never happened. That doesn't work. This just doesn't work. That's how we're wired. So you go to that person, and you say something like, and you sit down for coffee, you go to Starbucks or something, or you know, someplace non-threatening, and you say, you know what? You really let me down. I have to be honest about that. That's how I feel. You really let me down. You really broke faith with me. But then you say this. I still believe in our friendship." I'm still committed to it. From my end, I will remain your friend no matter what. Even if you walk out of here today and we don't reconcile, the door is always open on my end. I'm always willing to repair this relationship no matter what. And now imagine that your friend then breaks down and confesses their wrong to you. And they say, I know I did something wrong. I know I betrayed you. I know I didn't keep our end of the relationship, my end of the relationship. I, I want to get back into the relationship with you. I want to repair this friendship. You could honestly say that what has just happened to your friend is that they have been declared righteous. Okay? This would be one way of defining this phrase, declared righteous. Because you've dealt justice, You told them what went wrong. This is important. They're just. They've been justified. But you've also offered renewal and restoration to them. You have declared them in the right. You have said, whatever, I'm done. I mean, I've forgiven you. And the door is open now for us to have a relationship. And so you have been declared righteous to me. That's what God does to us when he declares us righteous. Now, I don't suppose that this is the easiest thing in the world to do. Uh, I think we have a lot of memories about how people have failed I don't know how many memories we have about coffee shop conversations like that that went well. Hopefully they match each other, but in reality that's not the case. But that's what God does for us. And, and the reality is that those are hard conversations to have. You have to give up something to say that to to them. You have to give up the, the desire to take revenge, to talk about them back, to betray them back. You have to give up something, which is what God does. It's not easy for him. But he gives something up when he declares us righteous. We know what that is. So I want to leave you with some good news today. I said I would point towards it because it's not in this particular text. There's one way to be declared righteous. That's to keep the law. To keep it in its perfection and to keep it perfectly. Those who obey the law will be justified. They will be declared righteous. But what about them and us who do not keep the law? Who have broken faith with God? Who have destroyed our end of the covenant? When God went like this, we went and hid. How are those people, which is all of us, declared righteous? Well, you'll have to come back another week, right, Find out. Isn't that exciting? You can come back some other day, find out more. No, actually, I'll tell you now, because I don't, like I said, I want you to be discouraged for just a minute, but not the rest of this week. It turns out that what we cannot do, Jesus Christ does for us. And this is the gospel. That's the core of the gospel. What we cannot do, Christ does for us. And there's such freedom in that. I'll tell you, and and it it hasn't been all my life, but parts of my life. And I don't know where I got this, because it didn't come from my parents. um, Because they were Lutherans, and if you know anything about the Lutherans, they're, they're great on grace. They're really big on grace. So it didn't come from my parents. But I struggled as somebody who had hoped or tried to keep God's law. Perfectly. And I failed. Over and over again. And not only that, it made me kind of a toxic person to other people, if that makes sense. Because I also, and and we read the beginning of chapter 2, you get so caught up in your own law-keeping that you also tend to notice everybody else's law-breaking and you ride them pretty hard. And you have negative views of all these other people. And so I struggled with this toxicity in my own faith that comes from this false notion that I can actually keep the law perfectly. I can't. And so there's a great freedom in realizing that, while, yes, chapter 2 does say you will be declared righteous if you obey the law, you're not going to be declared righteous that way. Yes, you should keep the law. Absolutely. Yes, you should try to keep the law. Yes, the spirit will move in you and make you a law keeper. But if you think that you can keep the law and secure your own righteousness by doing so, well we just need to keep reading in Romans to find out that that's a fantasy. It will not work. And so there's this beautiful freedom where then you can actually say, and this happened to me, and it came about because I ended up doing some things that I thought a righteous Christian would never do. And one of them was to get a divorce when I was 22 years old, 23 years old. I was married when I was 20. My father died of cancer three weeks after our wedding. It was a very difficult time to be a 20-year-old married person and have lost your father. All sorts of things were going on. We tried to make it work, um, but it was a difficult relationship. And it was extended by both of our conviction that Christian people don't get divorced. You can't. It's a, it's a one-way ticket. <laughs> you know, it's a, you're on this. And, um, and if you believe that, that's fine. I don't, I would, if you have that conviction about your own marriage, I think that's wonderful. And actually, I have that about the marriage I'm in now, is that I'm, I'm going to stick this out forever. It's, and it's not even that bad. You know? It's wonderful. <laughs> it's great. So maybe it's easy to say I'm going to stick it out forever. But um, we were too young. And we had too many things going on. And we had to forgive ourselves. And we had to forgive each other. And we had to let go of this notion that we could be a perfect couple and be this perfect family and be all these things. It didn't work. And so I had to throw myself on God's mercy and say, I can't keep this. I can't even keep the appearance of it because a divorce is very public. Why aren't you wearing your wedding ring anymore? Why aren't you with her anymore? We're divorced. What? Well, and you don't hide it from people. And when I was candidating to be your pastor, I made sure I told everybody I could tell, by the way, I'm divorced and remarried. So you know. It's just something that goes with you all your life. And I've come to my own peace about it with God's teachings on divorce. But to me, it taught me that I couldn't be perfect and that I needed to develop a compassion for imperfect people that wasn't there before. And that was the gift that came out of divorce. That was the gift that came out of public failure, was to say, other people are hurting. Other people are broken. They're on these paths of sadness, and I don't need to judge them. I need to walk with them as God walks with us like this. So the good news today is not that we can be declared righteous by keeping the law, but we'll be declared righteous because of what Jesus does for us. And being declared righteous means relationship is restored with God. So I'm going to ask you this week to go out as people who have had a relationship restored and also to be people who are willing to restore relationships with those who have wronged you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word in Romans. Thank you for your beautiful law, for the relationships that it encourages us towards, and thank you that we can be aware that keeping the law is not possible for us. Thank you, Lord, especially that Jesus kept the law and that you declare us righteous because of him. Amen.